0: January 7th, 2016. I'm sitting in the sunshine down in Fremont, California with my neighbor, John Lissack. John uh, spoke with us uh, for the radio some years back and talked briefly about his interesting history, which was that he was a participant in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which is a pretty cool thing we want to talk more about today. I'm especially motivated to pursue this because NBC News came by late last month to talk to John about this very topic. And uh, this will be airing in, I think, around Valentine's Day next month. Um, a special on, on that Olympics and, and John's participation, among others. John, I want to say welcome back to Radio Parallax.
1: Glad to be here.
0: You were born in 1914. Let, let's talk a little bit about your life, because as part of history, there was a terrible influenza epidemic that struck the nation, that struck the world yes. shortly afterwards, and this, this, was, uh, this tragically um, affected your family.
1: My mother died in 1918. She gave birth to her fourth child and got the flu, and she was gone in a week. My dad worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, and he had four children, and no no way he could do that. So the, the church that he belonged to helped him. They took care of the kids. Two of the boys, I was four, my brother was six. We went to a Catholic Orphanage in Elmsford, New Jersey, and we stayed there a year and a half. And my brother froze his feet and uh, went to hospital. Then my dad took me out. He, he worked for a gentleman who was big in the Red Cross. Lyle, his name was, and Lyle got me into the the uh, New York Orphanage Asylum, it was in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York.
0: Yes, we should point out that you were living in, in in New York on the Hudson River, which has something to do with why you became familiar with canoes a little bit later in the
1: story. When I when I got to the, to the New York Orphanage they I stayed there for 17 years. I, I went to the Olympics from there, finished high school from there, went to college from the Graham School. It changed the name from the New York Orphanage Asylum to Graham School because. Alexander Graham Bell donated a bunch of money, ah. and his wife was on the board of directors, so they became the Graham School. Okay, It was a, the best place in the world to live. It was like ten families, five girls' cottages and five boys' cottages, uh-huh. about 21 to 25 people per cottage, all the way from five years to, to 20 years of age, and you had... Uh, the kids did everything.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, the farm, the garden, the buildings, maintenance. It's uh, so all you learned. You had chores. You started at five years old. You started peeling potatoes. Yeah. And you worked your way up to shelling peas. And it, it it was a good place. When we finished grammar school and on the on the grounds, we went a mile and a half to Hastings High School. I watched them build it when I had my paper route. So I was in the first class, uh-huh. and I was the first in the first senior class to graduate. Okay, in thirty well, thirty-seven.
0: This this makes your story so much more remarkable, John, because we think about people going to the Olympics today. It's a lifetime. It's just it's a lifetime commitment. They're being trained since they were small children. They spare no expense. A lot of a lot of places, uh, um, you know, in the old communist bloc, used to, that was your profession. You were you were trained as a small child. You you were just you know, a, a kid under difficult circumstances in New York. On the Hudson, Um, I guess the question is, I don't know the answer. How would you get involved with boating and canoeing?
1: My brother was an artist and a craftsman, and he he went to work at a yacht club when he was in high school, Mm -hmm. repairing boats, because he was good with woodwork. He lived at the yacht club and took the train into New York City every day to go to art school. He, He got into canoeing from the yacht club. He bought a used boat and fixed it up.
0: And he invited you along to come start playing yeah. the same? Okay.
1: I, I gradually worked my up to uh, adult status at the Graham School. I had my own paint gang. And, uh, uh, and so with adult status, I didn't have to, when when the work hours were over, I was on my own. As long as I went to school, Okay. and as long as I was there to work the crew after school, they they let me go.
0: So I imagine after school you're spending a lot of time down there on the Hudson uh, yeah. paddling about.
1: Well, after after work, every night I would go down to the canoe club and, and train f- for a couple hours, then come home and and do my homework and and go to school the next morning, and, and my and that's the kind of day I had.
0: You competed in a tandem tandem canoeing yeah. when you got to the Olympics, so yeah. that by definition means you had a partner. Yes. Who, who was your partner? How did you hook up with him? And how did you guys get so damn good?
1: We trained. We practiced a lot. He was about my age, but he was a professional laborer. Okay. Uh, he he worked in caissons under the river and and top of buildings, and was, he could lift a a two hundred and sixty gallon beer barrel over his head. Holy. But he, he had to have help to get it down, otherwise he, <laughs> so, so he wouldn't do it unless he had help. But, but uh, <laughs> when we came home from the Olympics, I went to college, and I came back my freshman year in the summer, and I, I did a couple more regattas. But then I didn't have time. I had to work for a living. Yeah. I had to study. So I never went back.
0: Well, let me ask you this. How did you get the idea that you might be an Olympian? I mean, somehow you must have realized you guys are pretty good. You're paddling around. How, did, how was that connection made to the, uh, to the U.S. Olympic team?
1: The American Canoe Association uh, had a demonstration event in, uh, in Los Angeles in 1932. In the next Olympics, '36, they, they promised the Canoe Association uh, a place to compete. So we were the first group that went. Okay. We weren't assigned a parade or placed on the stand or anything. We were just like spectators, but we competed. That was the sad part. We stayed in the in the officer training school that was on the on the lake okay. where the canoe races were. That was about thirty miles from Berlin. Oh, Grunau was the name. That's where the oarsmen trained and raced, and that's where we trained and raced.
0: All right. Well, what was it, what was it like going over there? Did you guys obviously went by ship back in those days, when they weren't flying people around the world?
1: Ten of us had two rooms, six six floors below sea level. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you were kind of an add-on event, you were you were kind of a slightly second-class citizens.
1: And that's why I was in the stands when Hitler pulled his trick. He refused to shake hands with uh, Jesse Owens. Yeah. And what I noticed, I was in the stands. And when I noticed it suddenly, it was quiet. People kind of digested what they heard and what they saw. And then the, it went on; the, the show went on, and so it became noisy again. There was a there was a kind of a, a hesitation and and a, a, I guess a feeling of awe that it happened. I try, I got to talk to Jesse, and I I, I said, "Did uh, this happen?" Before, and he says, oh yeah, he says, people hate to get beat, but they hate more to get beat by a black man.
0: Of course, race relations here in the United States were not so great in the 30s either. So Owens, uh, you know, may have demonstrated to the world that, uh, that uh, there's an equality among the races, but he came home and he was, still, he was still basically a black man in America.
1: At that time, I was quite young. I had my 22nd birthday on board ship coming home. So, and I'd lived in that institution, so I I had a kind of protected life. I never met any black people until I went to college. The president of our class was a black man. He came to Springfield his freshman year, and he was the president. He was elected president of our class four different times each year. I went to a alumni meeting in San Francisco one time, and one of the guys there was in my class, and he was in that, that black fighter group.
0: Oh, the Tuskegee Airmen, yeah.
1: Tuskegee Airmen, and uh, that's the last time I went to any uh, college function. All
0: right. Uh, Berlin was supposed to get the Olympics, I guess, in 1916. World War One got in the way, so they were trying to show the world a lot of things. That we're back. Uh, we're, we're now a record force to be reckoned with. He spent like, I gather, like 30 million dollars to try and to try and beef up Berlin and make it look like a showcase city. When I gathered Johnny it was it was uh, pretty modern and
1: uh, one of the things that impressed me, you couldn't hear the streetcars coming. They were so smooth. Huh. And so you used to cross on the street in front of a streetcar <laughs> because he's banging you could tell right where it was. Not in Germany. <laughs> and one thing I noticed when we when we finished our event, we were free to travel. And Jimmy and I were were uh, on the train, and we got free transportation because of the uniform, any place okay. any place we went, you know. People treated us uh, respectfully. It's surprising how many people in Germany spoke English. Yeah. And we were on a train and trying to decide to get off at, at this station or the next one, and the fat guy in the seat said, uh, take the first one. And I said, uh, Hi, you, you speak pretty good English for a German. He says, Yeah, I'm a German, but I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> and, but uh, uh, so you, you never had any trouble on the train. People would respect. And, and when we left the park, it, it, they waited for the next train. They filled okay. it up and they waited. Okay. You shifted down. No fighting, no well behaved transportation there.
0: Well, the Germans still they still impress me to this day with how well they speak English and how organized they are. <laughs> I guess I guess they've continued in that tradition.
1: One of the things, though, that that was uh, interesting, that where we at, wherever there was a streetlight, there was a speaker, hmm. and they were talking, giving orders, huh. paying directions. You know, in other words, somebody was watching all the time.
0: I mean, obviously, the Nazi regime. Uh sent the world in flames not long after the Olympics. But in '36 that, that was not yet uh, evident to the world. And uh, I understand it was very well attended because people were curious about Berlin, and they did come from all over the world, double the attendance of, of the Los Angeles Olympics four years earlier. And, and my, my understanding is that they didn't see the strife and turmoil, and, and like you, were kind of impressed that, well, this, this country looks like it's doing pretty well.
1: It was a uh, typical... Olympic attitude, they, they were friendly people, amateur sport, amateur, and people that were there having fun, getting along. Same with their sport. They weren't professional, so they, they didn't have to make any media events or anything like that. It was there for your own achievement. That That's that what Olympics is, it's personal achievement.
0: Yes, it is. And although uh, you you did not wind up meddling in in your event, but you did pretty well, I gather. And just being able to compete is such an honor. It's something that most of us just can't even imagine.
1: I never met any Olympic competitors after that in whatever sport.
0: Well, you had one in the family, though. Well, I mean. Except for him.
1: Except for my brother.
0: Because when NBC News here, I was quite tickled last month, John, when, when they asked about medals, and, and you said, oh, yeah, my brother got a couple of them. He went to the London Olympics in '48, and he got a gold and a silver. You want to see them? Which is, which is <laughs> very cool.
1: We inherited them. The only medal I got was given to me by the mayor of New York.
0: Oh, really? They honored you guys when you came back?
1: Well, he gave it before we left. Okay. And we, because we were on a private ship and not on the Olympic ship, they had a little show. And uh, the mayor was there, and he presented us. with. It was a picture of him with a date. Okay. 36. It, was, it wasn't It was an Olympic thing. It was a mayoral thing. Coming home, we were met by the mayor, and uh, just a, a welcome home ceremony, nothing big.
0: There was no Olympics in '40 and or '44 because of the, because of war clouds over over the world, yeah. and I guess at that point I guess you figured that that was enough. You weren't gonna you weren't gonna continue to work for that because you would have had to wait to, like your brother 12 more years.
1: Well, my brother stayed uh, with the canoe cub. He spent two years in training. He built his own boat, a Canadian style canoe. Okay. And he 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 qualified it and raced it, and won with it. He won the 10,000 meter, and he got second in the 1,000 meter. His boat is, uh, as far as I know, it's in the uh, Boat Museum in Mystic, Connecticut. Okay. Yeah.
0: People speculate a lot of what accounts for someone's success is just practice, practice, practice. A lot of other people say, no, you've got to have the genes. You've got to have a certain ability to start with, too. Uh, how much do you think of, of the success of you and your brother is was just from hard work, and how much of it just because you were, you, you were pretty good at it? It's a, hard, it's a hard question to answer, I know.
1: If you're a competitor, you try to be the best you can in whatever sport you're in. Yeah. And your pleasure comes in seeing the achievement at the next competition. And uh, the first group in the Olympics, they didn't have a lot of years to train and get prepared. My brother had... Two full years of training. Yeah. So and he that that was his goal to get to Olympics and win the gold medal.
0: So who who did the training for you guys? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of its technique and knowing how to do this, and yeah. I'm sure you didn't pick it up all just on the fly.
1: No. Well, uh, your free time, you spent in a canoe. The American Canoe Association had a an island up on the St. Lawrence River, and every summer, they had a regatta up there. Well, a lot of canoeists made it uh, to stay a week there. And then we went from there to Toronto and competed in a regatta. Okay. And then finished our vacation on the St. Lawrence River and came home. That was that was a big deal. The American Crew Association headquarters. That's where you met all your competitors in a the, in the friendly uh, leisure time activity. Yeah. There was a place called a boat's castle, and they would go spend a the day there, paddle down, and come home. One one of the trips coming home, the the side of the river we were on was shiny, from the middle to the to the uh, left was black, and lightning and thunder. Jeez, and that side of the river, Jeez. and we were in the sunshine, <laughs> and we made it fifteen miles.
0: I want to know too, just for the record, that uh, when I was talking about kayaking some time back, and you started giving me some tips as to how to work those uh, work those paddles. And it was like that yeah, was really good advice. Uh, when you when you're when you're digging on the one side, shove forward with the other with the other hand, which is not necessarily intuitive to someone who's learning how to kayak, and it really helps.
1: Yeah, well, uh, if you're at it long enough, you find the way to put the most effort. Right. So it's not in your arms, it's in your whole body. Yeah. Everything from your feet, where they're braced, your whole body, you're using all the big muscles you can. My partner had a, a deal when, when we were t- training. We'd, we had uh, docks that were uh, targets. And we'd get 50 yards away and then we'd hit it, you know. And we'd pass that line and he'd say, give her 10. So what well, you you do your best to get to the line and then give her ten more, okay, or give her fifty, depending on how we felt you all know. right, and so that was one of the, the things I think that made us a little better was when you were pooped, you made an extra effort, you know you raced to the finish line, and then you you find out what you had left.
0: Well, I can't say I'm an expert on training in, 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 in athletics, but I have always heard that extra effort you give at the end, that it's worth a lot more than everything you did up till then.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I'll never forget to give a 10. If, if we'd sprint 10 more strokes, or, or if it was good, we'd go 20 or 50, depending on, on uh, his feeling of the event. He was the, the, the captain of the team. I was the stroke. Okay. Okay. He, he was the captain because he steered the boat. He was in the stern, so he had the most control of the boat.
0: Yeah. Did you get a chance to see, um, and it sounds like you were kind of isolated away from the main, uh, some of the main venues, did, but you were in the stands, did you get a chance to see a lot of the competition?
1: That was one of the things that bothered me. Every day, we we we, we went there, and we're going to race in a boat we never saw before. Oh. And every day, we got a new boat. But the manager says, keep your paddles. They were bigger. They were longer. They were made for a rigid boat. kayak that we raced in was flexible, a short blade. And we never got to try the short blades. I think the manager there goofed. Because if we had to try the I short blades... I guess. Yeah. I I think if we had tried, we would have seen that the advantage and the more strokes, shorter, kept the boat going. Okay. It's the bigger strokes, a lo- shorter, fewer numbers. The boat rose and fell. Okay. Uh, I think we, we made a mistake there, but then uh, uh, it was new. Everybody was new. We raced in the boat. We never practiced in until we got to Germany. <laughs>
0: oh. Wow. That that's by today's standards, that just seems crazy. Yeah.
1: But that's part of the game, you know. If you if you're in control of the event. You you guide it your way.
0: They were letting the uh, the the NBA basketball players compete in the Olympics. They were letting you know all these professionals, uh, professional tennis players compete in the Olympics. Uh, what, what do you think of that?
1: The Olympics is a free event. I mean, it's supposed to be uh, for anybody, and as long as it stays open to anybody, I think you live with with the conditions. It'll stay as an event. It won't be truly amateur. It's just another spectator event. And then we are a spectator nation. Look around. Grand Santa hold 100,000 people. Spectators.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because my understanding is that Hitler didn't think too much of the United States, but he really thought college football, where they had these huge crowds and chants and all that, the Nazis really liked that. I think they adopted some of those techniques. They thought that that was a good way to move people in, in large numbers which I thought was kind of curious.
1: The thing I noticed, uh, uh, my partner Jimmy had a a friend who was German. He was called back to Germany. And we met him. And he was in a uniform, a working man's uniform. Kids had a uniform, school kids had a uniform, working men had a uniform, policemen, uh, college graduates had a uniform. Everybody was categorized. Yeah, that friend of Jimmy's, he found us and uh, he he was he was stuck there he was a german citizen he could never get back to america Jeez. they wouldn't they wouldn't let him legally it's right he is a german citizen yeah. and they required that he stay you know a total dictatorship
0: did you think the german government succeeded in the olympics in showing the world that uh, you know we we've, we've got our act together do you, do you think people uh, looked at looked at nazi germany more positively or negatively because of the Olympics?
1: I, I think it, it helped the German people a lot because if you're in a dictatorship and you're able to achieve something of your own, that's pretty special. You know, somebody else is, is paying all the bills and you're doing all the work. Uh, I, I think it, it helped the German people a lot. I had a friend when I was painting he, he was a, a submariner at 19, and his ship was, his submarine was sunk, and he was a prisoner of war in England, and he learned to speak the language, he learned to, he became a chef huh. at the prison camp, uh-huh. and he learned that if he went to Canada and worked in the, in the woods for five years, he could get a citizenship in Canada. Okay. He never got back to Germany uh-huh. until... After he became an American citizen, Uh, I had his dad for dinner one time. His dad came to visit, and his dad was mad because Germany was at that time was communist. You know, it was controlled. Everything split in
0: two after World War Two. Yeah,
1: and uh, he worked all his life, and he had a, a bedroom and a bath. And he ate in a common cafeteria. And here his son came to America. And he had a private home <laughs> with, a, with an orchard in the back. The
0: You've been in great health, John, 101 years of age. I uh, just have to ask anyone who's, who's been doing as well as you have for so long, you got any, you got any tips for the rest of us as to how to, how to, how to how to keep healthy?
1: Eat well and exercise. Okay. Yeah. When I first came here, I was uh, uh, 65 years old. And I walked three hours a day, five days a week. Yeah. I hiked all over this country. Then I had work here to do, see. I have a garden. God called it God's Little Acre because there's a place for everything. Thirty fruit bearing trees, eleven different kinds.
0: <laughs> that itself sounds like a full time job. <laughs> yeah,
1: plus plus we had a summer garden and a winter garden. I had a friend that was an Afghani professor. And he lives a couple of blocks from here. And I used to meet him when I was hiking. He told me I was going to live to be 110. And so I got eight years to go, if I believe him.
0: And I believe him, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He he lived all over the world. And he said, this is the best weather in the world, all year round. Well,
0: we're sitting out here in January out in in the yard in the sun, so I got to say it ain't half bad, although I wish I wish the clouds would kind of go away. <laughs> it's a little cool.
1: Yeah, but uh, I remember a, a really bad winter back in uh in uh, Hastings where everything glazed. It was 15 degrees below freezing for 15 days. Mm. Everything was glazed. Mm. The trees, the sidewalks, the gravel roads, you, you slid everywhere you went. <laughs>
0: This is an explanation from why we're having this conversation in California and not New York.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Living in four seasons is a good thing. You learn how to live, uh, you know, all, all weather conditions. Out here you have a dry season and a wet season. Well,
0: John, it's been, it's been a pleasure talking about this. When that event airs next month, maybe we'll come back and do a follow-up. We're going to see how that comes across on NBC. They're going to have a lot of footage of a lot of your fellow competitors.
1: Uh, I'd be interested to know what they do. With it, yeah. Quite often when I wake up, I'm astounded that people, after 80 years, people are still interested.
0: John Lisek, thank you so much for speaking with us again, and this is not going to be the last time we're going to come back, and after NBC does their thing, we'll chat about that.
1: I'll see you when you get here.
0: All
1: right. My grandson's uh, father-in-law came. He's 95. Okay. And when he left, uh, he says... uh, I'll be back in five years. I said, I'll wait for you.